Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Today we're going to be continuing our throwback sermon series, taking a look at some of the Sunday school classics, the stories you've heard the most, so much so maybe that you hear them and you kind of like don't want to read them or you want to skim through them because you're like, what else is there for me to take away from that? I've heard that story my whole life. I went to Sunday school. I know a friend that went to church. Like I know that story. There's nothing more for me to take away. But chances are that there is. And so through this series, we've looked at stories like Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood, Moses, the plagues, the exodus, Jonah, and a giant fish. Not a giant whale, sadly. A giant fish. Um, Though I did learn last week that it could have been like a whale shark. I guess whale sharks aren't technically whales. So maybe that's why people have assumed it was a whale. Uh, But it is a giant fish, according to the text. And um, I'll just be transparent with you. I was not scheduled to preach again this weekend. Um, On Thursday, I got an international phone call from Pastor Chris saying, uh, hey, Delta just canceled our flight home from South Africa, and I do not think I'm going to get back in time to uh, preach or let alone be here on Sunday. They actually just flew into PDX, and I just got a text from him just a few minutes ago. So welcome home, Pastor Chris and crew. Um, we miss y'all, and uh, I just had a couple days to prepare a sermon here. Um, one of the things as associate pastor, uh, my job, it's, it's literally in my job description, is that I would have like a, a backup sermon, ready to go in case of emergency. Pastor Chris wakes up, he can't talk, he can't do anything, like, Casey, need you to go today, and I can just kind of take it out of my back pocket and be like, sweet, we made it through a Sunday. Uh, problem is, Jonah, which I preached last week, has always been my backup sermon. Um, so I did not have a good backup sermon for this, um, but the Lord is good, and we had an amazing journey uh, through the book of First Kings this week, and uh, today we're going to talk about the story of King Saul. You can turn to 1 Samuel 8 in your Bibles if you brought one with you. That's where we'll find ourselves eventually as we look at the text There's a lot to unpack here. Anytime we jump into a history book like 1 Samuel, uh, I as a pastor, as a preacher, can do a huge disservice if we don't actually spend some time to understand where we're at in the story, what's going on, uh, why this story is important, and to give you some important details and context because uh, chances are you haven't just like casually picked up First or Second Samuel or First or Second Chronicles in a long time for your light reading. Uh, it's it's not our go-to. It's one of those ones that we kind of skim through that we've heard about David and we've heard about the exile and we've heard about all these kinds of things, but it's not often something we spend a ton of time in. And so today we're going to put on kind of our Bible study caps for the first 10, 15 minutes as we just kind of really look at this text and try to understand what's going on um, because I just don't want you to feel like you're missing any pieces or don't understand what's happening or you might be new to the story as a whole and I want to make sure that you've got a fair uh, playing field for this as well. But before I get started, I want to pray for us. Lord, I am so thankful for your goodness to us. 
Thank you for being a faithful father that loves us so much, that draws near to us, and has given us your word. Lord, for more than 2,000 years, you have protected the scriptures and made them useful and relevant and true for your people to continue to try to walk out faithfulness and following King Jesus. And so we just ask today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us. Give us what we need to take and translate this text and this truth that you've given to us and help us make it applicable and real for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're not familiar with the story of King Saul, I'd like to kind of give you a little brief overview. Saul was the very first king of the nation of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was handpicked by the Lord through a priest, judge, and prophet named Samuel, who the book for Samuel is named after. Saul is described as a young and handsome man, and he was a head taller than anyone else in the land. But Saul did not want to be king at first. In fact, after Samuel had this conversation, like finding him and anointing him as king, you read that Saul kind of needed help along every step of the way in following up with what Samuel had instructed him for his next steps of becoming king. At one point we read that like God had to change Saul's heart so that he would do what he was supposed to next. And still when it came time to do the, this big coronation ceremony, the text tells us that they, they couldn't even find Saul. Um, they were like looking for him and they're like, man, you know, it's, imagine like I'm up here and I'm introducing Pastor Chris. And then we're all just like sitting here and we're like, yo, he's in South Africa right now. Like he's not coming up here. And that's like how it was. Like they're like now introducing your new king, Saul. And like there's no Saul to be found. And they have to go on this big hunt for him so much so that they have to like inquire upon the Lord to find him. Uh, which means you've really lost something. Have you ever been in that where you like just can't find your keys or your phone and you're like, God, please just help me right now. I need this so bad. That's where they're at. But the Lord helps them. Uh, the Lord kind of rats out Saul and tells them that he's hiding among some supplies. And they find him and they bring him out and they introduce him to the people and they anoint him as the king to be. Some celebrated this new king, bringing him gifts and cheering on his kingship. Others were skeptical wondering how someone like Saul would be able to lead their nation well. Saul won the hearts of the Israelites when he courageously saved a city from an attack from the Ammonites. He gave the Lord credit for the victory, and the people responded by immediately seeking to confirm him as king. Saul became king when he was 30 years old. He reigned for a total of 42 years, according to the scriptures. He commanded many military victories over the Philistines, the Ammonites, and other regional enemies at the time. He was loved and celebrated by the people at the start. But over time, a certain pride would overtake, it would well up within his heart. And he would begin compromising his integrity as the king of Israel. One time, in fear of being overcome by the Philistines, Saul overstepped his role as king and tried to take on the role of priest and broke ritual commands by incorrectly making burnt offerings to the Lord. Another time, Saul deliberately disobeyed God's commands in a battle against the Amalekites because of personal gain and what he thought would be beneficial for him and for the people. The Lord became convinced over time that Saul was not fit to be the king of Israel, so he set his heart on raising up David to become the king. 1 Samuel 15.35 sorrowfully tells us that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
The rest of Saul's kingship can be summarized as tormented, jealous, prideful, and full of vengeance as he watched the Lord bless the work of David and see the people give their allegiance to him. Sadly, Saul's life would end tragically in battle later in his life as he chose to fall on his own sword in fear that the Philistines would overcome him. Saul's life is very sad, and it's often used as this kind of like cautionary tale on what happens to egotistical and prideful and insecure leaders. And yes, his life is an example of the dangers of pride, jealousy, lack of integrity, desperation, and the evil that can corrupt someone who starts off humble and submissive and just wanting to honor the Lord. But Saul's story is much bigger than just the sins and trials that he faced personally. Saul would become a type, which in biblical theology refers to someone whose characteristics or qualities can be seen repeated in other people as time goes on. Throughout the Bible, there are good types and there are bad types. Good types might be messianic figures, people like Abraham or Moses or David, who kind of give us this like foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. And we get to look and we say, oh man, Jesus was, or like God was trying to like show us hints of who Jesus would be through these figures that came before him. But then there's bad types as well. And Saul is a bad type by which we can look at those who came after him and look at all the kings that failed and led Israel into sin and rebellion and say, ah, man, they became a lot like Saul. And ultimately, Saul's story is a warning, exemplifying the dangers of trusting in your own wisdom and trying to lead and guide your life on your own. If we were to put on our Bible study thinking caps again, I made a statement earlier that might be intriguing to you. Uh, It might not be, and that's okay. It was to me. Um, But here's what it is. The statement was that Saul was appointed the very first king of Israel. Now, if you skimmed in your Bible to where 1 Samuel is, uh, you'll notice that we're like a good ways into the story. We're not at the very beginning. Um, Israel's not a brand new nation. Although they've not inhabited the promised land for a super significant amount of time, the people of God have been through a lot, and they do have some sort of identity and formation. And so uh, through 450, 460 years of history, they've never had a king, and now all of a sudden they have one. And that should stick out to us as, as a red flag. Something's changing, something's shifting in the narrative. If we're getting a king for the first time, that means that there's some sort of governmental shift happening for God's people. Until this point, Israel's government would have been categorized as a theocracy. And in this form of government, priests typically rule the nation in the name of their God. And this is certainly what we see from Israel's history. There had always been an intercessor who received the word from the Lord directly for their direction and guidance of what God's people would do. Moses received insight Uh, from the Lord to receive the Ten Commandments, to write down the Mosaic Law that would guide God's people until Jesus came. Joshua took over when Moses died. The book of Judges records that there were 12 judges who kind of took on this role as intercessor, who would receive direct wisdom and guidance from the Lord for God's people. But something happened when Samuel, the priest, prophet, and judge at the time, uh, began to get older. When sensing the growing threat of the surrounding nations, 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9, and this is where we'll have it on the board or in your Bible, 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9 tells us, When Samuel became old, 
He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doomed to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, the Mosaic Law, which guided and directed God's people up until this point, did have a qualification in which the Israelites could install a king. This wasn't like a terrible, evil thing that they were doing by wanting a king. There were severe stipulations and strong warnings. You can read about them in Deuteronomy, that if they ever wanted to put in a king, there were strict, strict regulations on what that process would look like. So asking for a king in and of itself was not necessarily the problem. The problem was why they were asking for a king. Theologian Robert Constable said this about their request. On the one hand, it expressed dissatisfaction with God's present method of providing leadership through judges. On the other hand, it verbalized the desire to be like the nations. God's purpose for Israel was that it would be different from the nations, superior to them, and a lesson for them. God saw this demand as one more instance of apostasy that marked the Israelites since the Exodus. God would allow them to have what they asked for, like he had before in their rebellion. When they wandered through the wilderness, he gave them manna and quail and water. But unlike times before where it was mostly just blessings despite their rebellion, this time he warned of severe consequences for this request. Samuel goes on throughout chapter 8 to explain the consequences of having a king. You see, the Israelites were interested in the function of monarchy, but Samuel pointed out the faulty nature of a monarchy. It meant the loss of freedoms and possessions for the people that they presently enjoyed. Here's what Samuel warns them in 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 18. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and others to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out to because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel looks at the king's around them that the Israelites 
were jealous of. They saw how these other nations were rising up and how threatening and powerful they looked. But Samuel looked at them, and the main attribute that he saw is that they would just take and take and take. And they didn't just take like scraps. They took the best of what the people had. And he said, this is coming for you if you're going to install a king. This would be the death of their theocracy. They would no longer relate to God and receive guidance and instruction in the same way. They would not be as protected and supported because they would be rather led by one of their own than by God who made them. After this warning, we get the narrative of Saul finding, or Samuel finding Saul and anointing him king. And we pick back up in 1 Samuel 12 for one last warning and really this like farewell speech from Samuel as their judge. He begins by defending himself, asking, does anyone have evidence that I've done anything wrong? Do you really have a good reason for why you're making this change, why you want this shift? And the people confirm, no, you've been a great judge. We don't really have the right to sit here and question you and your integrity. And then he goes on to tell a brief history about the Israelites' unfortunate pattern of abandoning God. He reminds them of how they forgot about him right after he had saved them from Egypt through the Exodus. And despite their rebellion, God had rescued them from their enemies, brought them into the promised land, and he condemns them, accusing them of falling into this pattern again. He says in 1 Samuel 12, 12 through 15, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if, you both, you, if, you, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. The story ends with the people feeling the weight of their decision. They cry out in regret. They cry out like apologizing and repenting. But it's not a true full repentance because they don't ask like, hey, can we go back to that actually? Those consequences seem really scary. They they kind of press on anyways. And they're ready to take on their new king. And Samuel commits to still praying for them, trying to point them towards God's truth and obedience however he can. But his time as leader over Israel was coming to an end. His time as judge was finished. Though if you read on, you see he continues to be a prophetic voice, uh, mainly just condemning them and pointing out how this whole plan is slapping them in the face and turning on them. And you get this sense all throughout 1 Samuel 8 and 12 that Samuel knows this isn't going to end well for the people. Sure, he says, if you fear the Lord, this will go well for you. But if they look back on their own history, on their own patterns, they should have zero confidence in their ability to fear and obey the Lord. But there's something about the human condition, I believe, that when things get hard enough, when you're unsatisfied with how things are and how God seems to be moving or not moving, that you just can't help but believe, I know what will be best for this situation. I know what needs to be fixed And I'll do whatever it takes to do this right now. Even though you probably would sit back in a more humble moment and know that your track record would show that you're not always a great guide for your life. 
You're not always the most fit to make the best decisions and to make the best choices. There's something about when our back is up against the wall that we just say, I'm going to trust in me right now. I'm going to do this for myself, and I'm going to make this decision. For the Israelites, their nation would never be the same. Saul wouldn't be the only bad king that they had ahead of them. Even the good and decent ones like David messed up and caused problems for the people. The kings of Israel would go on to lead the people into idolatry, partnerships with wicked nations, wickedness and sin, division and war even between themselves. They would eventually be overcome by their enemies and taken into exile in Babylon and Assyria. That's a lot to unpack. There's a lot going on in this story, and there's a lot more that we didn't get to really talk about in this context. But there's a reason why I think it's so important to spend so much time here. Because I think so often when we look at the Bible and we read through a story like this, it's easy from a couple of thousand years apart to sit here and just kind of judge these people for being dumb. We can read this story and we're like, man, they had God as like their king. Why on earth would they choose a human to to rule them and to lead them? And look what he had done for them in the past. Like, why didn't they trust him? It's really easy for us to sit here and act like, we aren't prone to fall into some of these patterns and tendencies that we might not treat God the same. And I think there's something to learn from the example of the Israelites that we too may be at risk for having happen in our lives. But even more from that today, my hope is that we would consider Jesus' invitation that frees us from these behaviors and gives us hope and security and peace for anything that we face in this life. So the first way that we might relate to the Israelites in this story is in our dissatisfaction with God's methods. Just like the Israelites, you and I experience the ups and downs of this life, and we're very prone to wonder, like, God, where are you at in this? Why are you doing things this way, or working that way, or not working this way? Even those of us with the strongest faith in the world, we've been through all the ups and downs, we've been through really challenging things, we still all have these moments where we're just left scratching our head wondering what God is doing in a given moment. And I think too often, like, it's not this just curious, like, hmm, I wonder what God's doing right now. It's this, like, strong emotional sense of injustice and failure on God's part and we're frustrated, we're bothered. It's not just like this fun, like curious, like, like pondering of, I wonder what God's going to do in this. It's like, no, God, why are you not doing this? I feel like you're supposed to be doing that. Why are you letting this happen? It's a strong emotional experience when we question and wonder about what God is doing. The Israelites were watching their enemies rise up, and they become very anxious Because they looked at their leaders, they looked at Samuel's sons, and they're like, they don't have the chops to lead us against these people. We're going to die if these are going to be our rulers. Look how wicked they are. Look how sinful they are. Why would God choose them to be our leaders? We need to take a play out of the enemy's playbook, out of the Ammonites or the Amalekites. Look at them. They all have kings, and look how strong and powerful they look. Look how overcoming they are. They're ruling this place. And they say, we need to take a play out of their playbook and install a king for ourselves. And in their fear and dissatisfaction of how God has chosen to work in and through them, they try to take the decision-making into their own hands. They want their own solution, their own idea to try to make things better. You and I are not so different. 
in the midst of overwhelming challenges and very difficult seasons where we feel like we're hopeless if we just continue on doing the same thing, we will often compromise in hopes that we know a better way of handling the situation in front of us. When you've had a terrible week and nothing seems to lift your spirits and you're just looking for any kind of joy or comfort or pleasure, we will turn to things that are dangerous and destructive both inwardly and outwardly in order to find some sense of control or happiness. God's given you his word to speak truth to you, his spirit to give you power and strength, a community to walk with you and encourage you through difficult things. But man, how tempting is it to go to that pornography website, to turn to alcohol or substances to escape, to go to that party so that you can drink or maybe get to hook up with someone, to invest in bad relationships and get involved in reckless and unwise activities. Things that in one moment we might be able to sit back and say like, Yeah, I know that's probably not a great activity for my life and not something that God would have for me. All of a sudden, when we're going through something really challenging, it's like, that's really appealing. That seems like that would kind of take the edge off of what I'm experiencing right now. I think I'll go choose that instead of maybe some of these other tools or methods that God has given me. The depth of our trust in God is put to the test when we face difficult circumstances. Will we be like the Israelites in 1 Samuel who forget their God and his history and what he had done for them? Or will we cling tight to him and rely on him even more in our moment of need? Many of you know here some of the challenges that my family has faced throughout this year. I think most of us can identify a year or different seasons in our life where it's just kind of like bookmark forever because of something very challenging that you've experienced and you went through. Like, none of us will ever look at the year 2020 and be like, oh, that was a great year. Like, you hear that, and you're like, that was the worst year ever. It's terrible. It's marked us all. It's just left this lasting impression on us. Certain things just can, can have that effect on us because of their profound difficulty. The year you or someone in your family experienced divorce, the year you lost a loved one that you never would have expected to have to live without, the year that you faced financial crisis and disaster like you never could have prepared for, I think 2023 will be one of those years that I look back at and say, man, that was a bear of a year. It has been one of those things where you go through something really difficult and you think, that's only up from here, right? It's got to get better after this. And then something worse and more difficult happens not long after, and then seemingly another. And even a couple months ago, I remember my wife Jess and I were sitting back having this conversation, and we both separately had felt this strong impression from the Lord that he was encouraging us to endure, to wait, to trust him in the midst of darkness and heaviness, and to know that, like, God's blessing is on the other side. God's God's reward is on the other side. This will not last forever. Wait. He will bless you. He will encourage you. He will build you up. We both just felt this strong impression that it was like, we've been through a lot, we continue to go through a lot, but God is trustworthy. We can wait, because on the other side of this, we're going to be okay, and he's still going to be a good father to us. This was a couple months ago, and little did I know that the toughest things we would face had yet to happen yet. I was already at that moment where I thought, like, you know, the, the night is darkest before the dawn, but it just got darker. It just got heavier. It just got harder. And I feel this dissatisfaction well up in my soul that makes me want to question God's faithfulness. 
and his promises and his ability to deliver on them and what he said. And I'm tempted to think, man, if I went all in on a videography career, I bet I could solve our, fi- our family's financial difficulties. If I chose this outlet or this activity, I bet that would bring me a lot more joy than what I'm experiencing right now. I bet I'd be less sad about my experiences. My flesh tries to convince me to forget God and to abandon his ways and to try something new because seemingly things aren't going the way that I thought they were supposed to. Perhaps you feel it too. Dissatisfaction with how God is or isn't working in your life and the belief that you know what you need to improve your life and to make things better. In his book, When God Seems Gone, Pastor Adam Mabry explains that so often the root of our disappointment stems from our expectations of what we believe God is supposed to do for us. He explains that we all have certain expectations of God, and they can be put into three categories. Physical expectations, mental expectations, and emotional expectations. Now, you don't have to uh, be into the prosperity gospel to have physical expectations from God. Adam notes in the book that you might not expect a mansion and a $20,000 wristwatch and a Maserati from God, but you probably do expect a decent single family home, a reliable sedan that can get you to and from places. On varying levels, we all have physical expectations of what God should give us. And when we face this reality of our perception versus what we're having to live in and experience, significant disappointment can well up. It's not supposed to be this way. I'm faithful to God. I trust God. Why am I facing this? Why do I just keep running into car issues? Why can't we just have a better home? Why can't we just have a more reliable life? Second, we have mental expectations. Every person, even atheists, have a theology of what they believe about God and how he acts and what he does in our world. And again, when our theology and our experience don't line up, it can cause significant discomfort. We ask ourselves, you know, we must ask ourselves, what do you expect God to be like? And are your expectations based on scripture? Are you consistently reading the scriptures so that you can refine your expectations and find faulty ones that maybe you're attributing to him so that you can confirm what the truth is about who your God is because our, theo- our personal theology can often leave us very dissatisfied. And finally, we have emotional expectations. Many feel that it's God's purpose in our lives to make us feel happy, secure, or safe. And the minute we begin to not feel this way, our hearts can begin to accuse God of wrongdoing. Mabry notes that this can be hard to articulate at times. We don't always have these like really robust ways of being able to communicate it, but it might come out in a simple single sentence like, I thought God would make me feel better, and he didn't. I thought God would take this pain away, and he hasn't. And the journey of overcoming our expectations to avoid such extreme disappointment in God requires first the self-awareness to assess and discover our expectations, and then second, a willingness to engage the scriptures so that we can learn about who God really is. In a season where it would be really easy for me to give in to the lies that I feel in my heart and in my head about who God is, how good he is, how he acts in the world, I'm fighting with everything I have in me to identify these faulty thoughts 
to confront them with the truth of Scripture and to invite the Holy Spirit to change my heart and my attitude and my perspective. I'm clinging tight to my Bible. I'm reading and listening to helpful gospel-centered teachings and reading books like Adam Mabry's book. The enemy wants you and I to be dissatisfied with God and to put our hope elsewhere, to believe that we could somehow solve our problems better than God can. Don't give in to the lie. Pray psalms like Psalm 86, 11 that says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Combat dissatisfaction in your soul by becoming self-aware and reinforcing yourself of who God really is and what he does through the scriptures. The second important takeaway for us from the story of Saul and the monarchy is that in our fear and insecurity, like the Israelites, we will often face the temptation to take on the methods and means of the world because we think that they've got better options than we do. The Israelites looked at the nations around them and thought, look how intimidating they are. Look how impressive they are. How victorious they seem to be. I think it's time that we try to be like them. That we take on their methods and their means so that we can try to find that same kind of victory that they have. I have many close friends that have walked away from faith in recent years. Really, I guess probably over the past 10 years. And you can usually see it coming in someone. It's never almost like this like overnight thing where like somebody just wakes up and they're like, you know what, this has all been a lie. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. There's usually like red flags and warning signs that you can see in somebody along the way. And for those that I've been close enough to, I've actually got to even have like really hard conversations about what that journey is looking like. The, the things they're starting to believe, the questions that they have, the, the challenges that they're hearing from other communities that they're starting to take on for themselves. And one of the things I've heard many times as a friend drifts away from Christian community or from spiritual discipline or alignment to Christ altogether is that they're surprised by how much they're enjoying life apart from God. They almost like expected it to be this thing where like it would not feel as good as their Christian life. And so they're just like kind of dipping their toe in the water. But I'm sure I won't like it, so I'll probably go running back to Jesus afterwards. But they like what they found. And they end up sticking with it and drifting further and further away over time. And like the Israelites, they have been deceived about what kind of life really is good, true, and beautiful. They cash in everything that they had and what they believed and what they hoped in for what they see out of their coworkers, friends, classmates, and the things that they find meaningful, purposeful, joyful, and hopeful. And when life doesn't crumble right away, you kind of feel like, I feel like I've made the right decision. I think I'll stick with this. This doesn't seem too bad so far. Many Israelites were so skeptical of Saul when he was chosen to be king, but all it took was to watch him go win one battle, one victory, And they were ready to run to the coronation to confirm him as king. They just needed a glimpse, but it was a deceptive glimpse. They had no idea what kind of trouble they would find themselves in 10, 15, 20, 30, 400 years down the line because of their decision to install a human king. As the story went on, the kings never lived up to their promises. And they would always look to the next one and say, I bet he's different. I bet he'll be the one to fix what he couldn't do. But then they end up just repeating the same activities and behaviors as the ones before them. Even ones like David, 
many great, amazing aspects of his kingship, his failures had consequences that would impact generation after generation on Israel. The kings failed the people. And the Israelite vision to take what they saw out of the world and to apply it and install it to their own life resulted in their downfall. Now, y'all live in Eugene, Oregon. I don't have to convince you that being a Christian is not the most popular choice that you could make living in this city or being a student on campus. There's a real challenge in trying to follow Jesus here. You and I will be constantly invited to compromise your faith faith. And to look at the life or lifestyles of the world around us that on the surface level appear good and meaningful and impactful. But it's folly. It's deceptive. It's lies. It will not satisfy and it will not bring the salvation you truly need. The world and its morals and ethics and popularity all change with the wind. Nothing is stable. Nothing can sustain you. Choose the Lord and his ways. Because what he has said is good, true, and beautiful transcends all time, culture, and location. It's meaningful, it's lasting, and it will sustain you for this life and for eternity. Don't give in to the temptation to take on the ways of the world to solve your problems. You'll only find more issues. Worship team, you can come on up. Here's the best news about this story. Uh, Though many, many bad kings would follow in the example of Saul, God's people uh, would never and still have never found out how to fully remain completely dedicated to him. The Lord would do an amazing thing by sending Jesus Christ to be the last king that we'd ever need. When Jesus lived on this earth, he did obey God's commands. He did live a perfect life, pouring out everything he had to the poor, the sick, the outcast, and the broken. He lived the life that Saul, David, the Israelites, you, me, could never have lived. He's the only one who deserved to experience the fruit of a life completely dedicated to God. And he took all of that glory and all of that honor that he had, that he earned, that he was to receive. And he died on a cross as a sacrifice so that you and I could receive what he deserved. Eternal life. Perfect, restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. For all the times you've rebelled against God, there's grace and mercy. For all the times you tried to be like the Israelites and figure out your own ways when you were dissatisfied with God, there's grace and mercy. When you and I were unable to live this life of obeying God and living out the life that he intended for us, Jesus did. And he freely offers you the rewards of what he's done. And he did it because he loves you. He's not just a father who gets angry at sin, though he does. But he's a father who's heartbroken and compassionate towards his children who choose other than him. And he compassionately extends his forgiveness, mercy, and grace so that the relationship that you have with God can be restored and you can be spared of the consequences for your own actions. Jesus invites you today to find acceptance through him and his ability to live the life that you couldn't. The second thing Jesus invites you to experience is the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can be changed and become more like him. You don't have to will yourself into this new life that God calls you into. But when you believe and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit to help you grow and become more like him. The Holy Spirit is here to help you. Today, I don't invite you into some like 10-step process of how to stop being the God of your own life. Today, I invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you. 
to humble yourself before the Lord and say, I don't have what I need to rule my own life, to guide myself into what is true and good and beautiful. Holy Spirit, I need you to change me so that I can walk this out, that I can do this. Invite the Holy Spirit to help you where you are weak, to highlight and show you what your faulty expectations of him are, to help you heal and grow through the ups and downs of this life. The Holy Spirit is here to help you. Today I want to pray for you. And I think there's several different places we might find ourselves in this space. One, we might identify with the person who's just really realizing that, like, I don't have what I need to rule my own life. And when I rely on my own wisdom, my own judgment, everything goes wrong. This isn't what God has for me. And today I want to invite you to consider the life that Jesus is offering you. Freedom from having to be the God of your own life. Direction and wisdom that will transcend not just your time in this season or what you need through whatever circumstance you're facing right now, but something that's going to root you and ground you for the rest of your life and for eternity with the Father. And second, I want to pray for those that feel like they need a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit. Maybe your walk in following Jesus has kind of become this burdensome thing. It's something that you feel like does require a lot of effort. You feel like you keep messing up and you just can't wrap your mind around how to more effortlessly follow Jesus like what we read about. You hear something like Jesus saying that the the burden is light. You're like, the burden feels kind of heavy to me. I want to invite you today to feel the power of the Holy Spirit to help change you. So please close your eyes as we pray. And I just want to pray for folks that find themselves in those positions. Lord God, Father, I pray for those that recognize that their wisdom and decision-making is insufficient and not satisfactory of what we need. Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you. God, we all need this on some level or another. Even those of us that have been walking with you for a long time still have our, our moments and our days and our seasons where we choose to trust you more than, or trust ourselves more than we trust you. And so God, I just, I ask that you would glorify Jesus in our hearts, make him bigger in the eyes of our hearts so that we would, we would see how great and amazing he is first for doing what, what we couldn't do to live out this life of pleasing you and honoring and obeying you then to God offering us just the fullness of what it means to live in your kingdom, to be under his kingship, his perfect kingship, God. I pray that you would help people take next steps today, Father. If there's someone who's been yearning to say, you know, I've been on the sidelines in this. I've not fully committed to this Christianity thing today, but it's time I talk to my friend because I'm all in. It's time to go find that campus minister or that church staff member, my small group leader. It's time for me to start actually having Jesus be the Lord of my life. I pray that you would help them take those steps today, God. And I pray for those that are weary and burdened down, feeling like they just don't have it to live out this life. Even in their best efforts, they still see where they fall short, where they mess up, where they make mistakes, where they let you down. Father, I pray first that they would get to experience your grace. Thank you, God, that we're not judged each and every day. Uh, by our decisions. Lord, your word says that your mercies are new each and every morning. Thank you, God, that we wake up today not being held against whatever we did yesterday, whatever we said yesterday. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would fall afresh on us, 
give us power to walk out this life that you've called us to, that we would actually begin to experience the fullness of your promise, that the burden is light when you're yoked to Jesus, that he helps us change, that he helps us grow, that you do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you move and touch and bless us today? God, we need it. Lord, I just pray that you would receive all honor and glory as we aim to make you the king of our lives, not ourselves. In Jesus' name.